At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. This episode is sponsored by photographycourse.net. Our 365 Days of Photography course is now live. This is an amazing opportunity for you to grow as a photographer. My teammate, Kevin LJ, has produced this course in a step-by-step -step format, which is very easy to follow. He presents it in bite-sized lessons, each with a practical challenge. You'll learn and practice a new aspect of photography every single day. If you've been wondering how you can improve your photography without having to commit time to long lessons, this is the course for you. We've designed each lesson to be around five minutes long, and you can spend as much time on the challenges as you like. There's also a friendly forum where you can share the photos you take and get constructive feedback from others on the course. Kevin's professional photography experience is extensive. He covers not only photography essentials, but also many genres of photography throughout the course. You will learn far more about photography than simply how to use your camera. For our listeners, we are offering a very special discounted price of $99 instead of the launch price, which is $149. The final price will soon be $365, so make sure to take advantage of this great deal today. Go to greatbigphotographyworld.com slash 365 to claim your discount. Hello everyone, Happy New Year! My name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. I'm very honored to be starting this year with a very special interview. I talked to Mike Rosenthal, who was a director and photographer. He's worked with some of the most famous people in the world for some of the biggest magazines in the world. Think Justin Bieber, Mindy Kaling, and Rami Malek. You'll find out about his background in film, his journey to success, and much more. Please enjoy. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the Take Photography World podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, this is Mike Rosenthal. Um, I am a photographer and director, and I'm happy to be here. Very, very happy to have you here. What camera equipment do you use? You know, it's interesting. For the last, God, I'd say probably 10 years or so, I've been uh, exclusively Canon, um, mm -hmm. shooting on, you know, the, mostly the, the 5D series of their SLRs. But in the last year or so, I, I'm still using Canon kind of as my workhorse, but I've also been moving into Fuji territory. So I have a smaller, I have the X100F mm -hmm. uh, camera, which is kind of my, my knock around uh, travel camera. I just throw it in a bag and don't really, you know, need to, need to worry about it too much. And then I also bought the GFX100 uh, medium format mirrorless from Fuji. And that has become kind of part of my part of my regular rotation now uh, for work shoots. So mm -hmm. it's it's starting to to spread out a little bit. Before Canon digital, uh, I had a Contact six four five back in the film days, um, and then of course a few different Canon thirty uh, five millimeter cameras. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I noticed uh, 
on your Instagram, especially the change in style, especially, I mean, it makes sense now that you mentioned that you use a medium format camera because I do notice the compositionally things look different and it does create this beautiful, creative atmosphere in your shots. You know, I always loved the the visual that you get from uh, from a medium format. Um, and some of that, honestly, is really just the quality of the glass. Some of that, of course, is the larger uh, film size and just the larger target area. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not always practical, especially now that it's, it's primarily digital. I'm not really shooting film anymore. Uh, but, you know, for a medium format digital file um, off the Fuji, the raw file is 100 megabytes per file. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, as much as I love the, the image, I don't love, you know, a 500 gigabyte project folder, um, you know, it just eats up so much hard drive space. So I try to be selective with how I shoot the medium format, but I also have, you know, just invested in good Canon lenses. So I, you know, just use the L series lenses, which, you know, while it's not exactly the same as a medium format shot, you know, it, it comes a bit closer than some of the other lenses. Yeah. Camera equipment is very important. And of course it's not everything, but good glass, it really shows in photography. If you use really good equipment, it just shows in the quality of the work. A hundred percent. And, but I would say, you know, in contrast to that, you know, sometimes it's also fun. I'll buy some cheap plastic lenses sometimes just because, you know, digital is such a, a kind of sterile, you know, image capture. And so you don't have, you know, some of the, uh, the happy accidents that you get with film and you don't get, you know, you've lost that, that kind of analog quality. So by introducing maybe some sort of flawed lenses or things that, that have a little different personality of, of their own, it kind of keeps the, the image sometimes from getting a little too, too clean. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't always get away with, you know, using a, a plastic lens on a, on a pro set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you make a really good point. And you're right. A lot of photographers nowadays, especially those who mainly specialize in digital photography, they like to make their photos look nostalgic and make it seem like they were taking with a vintage lens. So there is an appeal in that for sure. And it is very pleasant to work with. Imperfection, there's beauty in that. Yeah, it's funny to see, you know, people... You know, younger photographers coming up um, and shooting like really beautiful stuff, but they're they're posting on Instagram and not, you know, it's a hashtag 35 millimeter, you know, like that's a a special feature. Um, Whereas back in the day, you know, we were trying to kind of get away from, um, you know, just the, no, I wouldn't say burden, but, you know, shooting on film is definitely more complicated, takes more time. um, And generally now, you know, clients, are used to having things turned around so quickly. And unfortunately, a lot of labs have disappeared. So it's not nearly as convenient to, to shoot on film. So it, it was sort of, once the quality of the digital was there, it became easy to, to transition over from film. And it's funny now to see, you know, people going back to film, like it's, you know, a, a special feature. Yeah, yeah, that is really funny. They kind of yearn for it almost. A lot of people are investing in disposable cameras and playing around with, you know, Polaroids and stuff. So, yeah, it is interesting. Very interesting contrast. Yeah. In an interview for The Native Influence, you mentioned that you had a very creative upbringing, which led to a passion for visual effects. You started as an intern at Warner Brothers and trained to be a cinematographer under Russell Carpenter. You also said that you got into photography by accident. How did that happen? You know, I so my. My parents were always really supportive of all of my creative endeavors and my um, both of them, even though they didn't both work in the arts, you know, they're both fairly artistic themselves. Uh, so I was very lucky that they they never discouraged me from being artistic. And, you know, I also loved computers and, and the fusion of those two things led me to visual effects. And it was happened to be, you know, right at the kind of the birth of the big visual effects and CGI industry itself. So, you know, I was kind of in an exciting place at an exciting time. But what I found was, you know, was the human element. And, and that's something that, you know, you really only get by being on a physical set working with other people, um, particularly other really talented people in different departments, you know, whether it's art department or hair and makeup, wardrobe, things like that. And that's kind of what led me back into, into film. And, you know, I had a friend who uh, went straight from high school into production. He worked as a PA and you know, eventually worked his way up uh, into AD roles and production managing. So he was the one that kind of 
that got me connected with my first film jobs as a PA and, you know, then a camera intern and, and eventually got connected with Russell and started working with him. But, you know, I was still, I was very young and it's a hard, it's a really difficult lifestyle working in film, you know, an average day is 12 hours. That's, that's basically the minimum number of, of, of hours per day that you'll be on set. And it just goes up from there. And, you know, feature films, they try to keep it to 14 hours maximum. But in some cases, you have to flex to 16, even though, you know, it really becomes unsafe at that point. And, you know, the unions have really pushed back because there have been, you know, incidences of, of accidents and, um, you know, some severe injuries. But, you know, even at 12 hours, if you're talking, you know, the minimum number of hours per day, you know, you, you multiply that by five days a week, then you multiply that by, you know, let's say you're, you're shooting for sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's nine. Um, you know, the fatigue is incredible. And then you also figure, you know, you're so tired that when the weekend comes around, you, you can barely function. All you can do is sleep. So you're not really seeing your friends. You're not seeing your family. At one point, you know, I stopped doing laundry altogether. I would just go buy, you know, new shirts, new socks, new underwear, uh, just because if, if I had 10 usable hours over the weekend, the last thing I wanted to do was to sit at a, you know, a shared uh, washer dryer set, just trying to, to clean my clothes. So it, it's a really hard, but still exciting uh, life. And, you know, by the time I had worked with Russell for about three years, I was reaching a point of just, you know, really kind of questioning whether or not I was kind of cut out for this. And at the same time, my, my parents were starting to kind of go through what would turn out to be a, a long protracted divorce. Um, I personally hadn't been to therapy yet um, and was really not in control of my emotions. You know, they were really kind of pulling me in, in many different directions. And I just felt like, you know, I was not ready to, to do this, which kind of sent me into a bit of a tailspin because for years I thought that, you know, film was one of my main sources of inspiration. Um, I really, you know, admired filmmakers so much. And I, I, I really, you know, I, I spent hours and hours and hours weekly just reviewing movies, figuring out what went right, what went wrong. So I really thought that that was going to be my calling. And then when I reached this point of fatigue, I thought, well, shit, you know, if if this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, what am I supposed to be doing? And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people go through. You just It's confusing. You know, there, there's so many options to life um, and nobody can can really tell you what where you're supposed to be. And around that time, I had a friend who was he was doing a lot of different things. He was doing some theater. He was doing, you know, some dance. He was doing um, some short film project, music videos. And he was also doing still photography, mostly headshots and, you know, portraits and things like that. But he had a set of strobes, which in the film industry, there is no use for strobes. Mm -hmm. So I was never really exposed to any kind of non-continuous lighting. So the first times I got to to really play with him uh, with his strobe kits, it was fascinating to me because you could overpower daylight, which is something that was, you know, very difficult to impossible to do on a film set just because, you know, the quantity of light needed is, you know, was extraordinary. So suddenly, you know, I was able to to do some really interesting and previously impossible things with light. And with my 35 millimeter still camera, which I always kind of, I always carried with me over my shoulder, you know, I was starting to do things that, were, that really kind of got me inspired again. And, and I found that I could apply some of the same lighting principles that I had learned in my film studies. Uh, I could apply that to, to stills and then also bend and break some of those rules with this new lighting equipment. So that's kind of how I, I first got exposed to still photography. Now, of course, you know, turning that into a career was an entirely different, you know, challenge and problem. But, you know, once I started taking pictures, I, I realized like, wow, I really enjoy this. And it's not a 12 hour times five, you know, uh, weekly commitment. Like this is something that, you know, is a day shoot and maybe it's not even a full day. Maybe it's part of a day. And I was getting the creative 
payoff that I, you know, missed from, from film, but it was on a more manageable pace, uh, you know, for, for where I was at in, at that point in life. And, you know, then it, I've always been very goal oriented. So once I realized, okay, this still photography thing is something I'm, I'm interested in. I want to, I want to do more of this. So then it was a, a deep dive into, okay, who's out there right now that I really admire, who's doing cool and different and weird stuff. And, you know, at the time, David LaChapelle was really blowing up. And while my style wasn't really his style, um, and I didn't want to kind of be a David LaChapelle copycat, I appreciated that he was really pushing the boundary. So that, okay, how's he, what's he doing with light? What's he doing with framing? How is he, um, you know, positioning the talent, you know, and then I would do the same thing for other photographers who were you know, kind of old masters, whether it was Avedon or Helmut Newton or Patrick DeMarchier or Peter Lindbergh. Um, so it was really kind of doing my research to, you know, I'd been exposed to all of these film masters. Now I needed to figure out who are the photography masters. And then the other thing was, you know, if I'm going to treat this as a job, if I really want to, you know, I need to make money, I have to support myself. So how am I going to support myself? And it's starting anything new is really hard to, you know, to, to actually make money. in. so I had to be realistic and just kind of figure, all right, if I, uh, if I need to make money right away, what are my marketable skills? And the, the first thing that, that kind of came to mind as an easy way to make a bit of money was retouching. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say, you know, I was looking at the work that I get done now and even some of the work that I do myself, I certainly was not at this level of, you know, kind of professional skill, but I was good. I was definitely good enough. And it was something that was easy enough for me to, you know, I didn't need to purchase a ton of extra equipment. I already had the computers, I had the tablet. And so I would just try to meet other photographers partially to, to just kind of network and see what I could learn from them and, you know, and just kind of hang out with them. But then also offer my services in retouching, which, you know, it can get quite expensive if you're, you're, you know, really going for a good retouch. And when you're just starting out, paying those prices is, it's kind of, it's cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I would charge maybe 50 bucks an image to do this retouching, that was something that was doable for the other photographer would give me a bit of money, which, you know, being 22 and, and a guy, you know, I didn't really have tremendous costs. So, you know, I would just take on as much of this uh, retouching as possible. And then at the same time, try to identify companies that were located in LA that I could approach to start trying to to shoot for them. And in the early days, that was mostly t-shirt lines and denim lines and things like that. And, you know, in some cases, it would be maybe a few hundred bucks and they would cover the cost of the film, of course. And then I would get free clothes, you know, which again, 22 and a guy, like I was super excited just to get new clothes and and have a few hundred bucks. So that's really where it started, you know, but it was important for me to, to really explore the landscape locally. And, you know, there's, there's no point in me trying to reach out to a company in New York or London or Paris. Um, I needed to see who was local to me and who was actually producing content and, and who had products that I really liked. And then it was just making cold calls, you know, and just trying to figure out who was it that did the hiring? How do I get in front of them? How can I, how can I somehow do a test shoot for them or, or something to, you know, ingratiate me with, with their executive leadership? Um, and that, that was the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, that is an incredible beginning. And I really appreciate and admire you for taking initiative and not just doubting yourself all the time. Although I'm sure that was a thing too, right? When you started not really knowing if you were good enough or, or whatever, but you took initiative and you made cold calls. And I think that's something that the listeners will be inspired by because oftentimes when we start or we're, when we're in the middle of, you know, a creative block or something and we feel like we need to go in a different direction creatively, we doubt ourselves and we get lost in that fear of not being good enough but you just you went kind of beyond that and you stopped overthinking and you just you did it you took action I think that's very admirable well thank you and and I won't say that I was without fear you know I I definitely I had all of those fears of not being good enough of not you know being skilled enough or 
even if I'm not good enough, if, if that wasn't necessarily the, the question, which it was in some cases, you know, a lot of times it was, well, these people are so much better than me. So why me? But there's something, and I, I don't know if it was something that I just picked up from, you know, my dad. My dad was always really, you know, preached persistence, um, which of course as a kid, you know, it's always like, I oh, know dad, great, I got it. But whatever it was, it, it stuck. And so even though I had that fear and those fears, I wasn't paralyzed by those fears. And it was, and you know, maybe it's just the, the stubbornness and the, um, just the, I want to do what I want to do mentality somehow overpowered the fear a bit. And I, again, I still had those fears and look, it's something that, that I don't think ever really goes away. Um, you know, there's always, you know, the, those little voices in the back of your head that, that are comparing you to other people and to other work. And, you know, that stuff I think is always there, especially if you're creative and you're in a, a competitive field. But I think the key is to not let that paralyze you and to also be realistic with yourself in the sense that, you know, if, if you're going into really any field, but particularly a field that has some kind of sex appeal, something that's exciting that, you know, is considered cool, there are a lot of people that are going to want to do that job, whether or not it's because they want the financial reward, they want the social, you know, the merit, um, or they, they want the bragging rights, whatever it is, there's a lot of people that want to do it. So, you know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. And the people who succeed, there will be some people who either just are extremely lucky or, you know, just happen to produce some really standout work that gets noticed by the right people. In many cases, there's a lot of artists, you know, be it poets, potters, photographers, filmmakers that come from very wealthy families and they don't really talk about it, but they do. And that affords them the ability to just kind of keep creating their art without having to, to worry about, you know, covering their, their costs of, of living. You know, there, there are people from all different kinds of circumstances, you know, but if you really want to succeed, most of the people who succeed, it comes down to just hard work. And that hard work includes treating yourself as any other business. And part of that is marketing. And that's not just email blasts or your website, but that's actually making cold calls, meeting people, you know, putting your head down and doing the work that is not fun, that is, you know, uh, really the backbone of, of any business. Yeah, that is a wonderful answer. I agree with you completely. I remember when I first started, I was also, I had this fiery passion within me. It was very persistent. And then with time, of course, you start to compare yourself to other people. And as you said, and it's good to know, also very comforting that somebody like you who has so much experience and who is so successful in the industry still has these little voices in their head kind of doubting themselves um, in a way. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely all about hard work and persistence and taking initiative. That is so important to just to do the work, even if it's not always fun and sometimes boring, and to also be open to failure because that's an important part of the process. 100%. And really, you know, taking those, those failures in stride and, and not just, you know, taking it as a kick to the gut, but at some point, once you get over the, the sting of the failure, uh, you know, really look at what you did and just figure out, okay, how, what went wrong? How can I do better in the future? How can I learn from this? And how can I turn this into, you know, into a success? Um, because, you know, you, you talk to, to anybody who's been successful and they'll just, they'll tell you if, if you're not failing, then you're not trying hard enough. You're, you're not, you're not reaching far. Enough. So you really should be stretching yourself to the point of failure and then when you do fail take you know try to to take it as a learning lesson yeah exactly celebrate it even if you don't really feel like celebrating just see it as an opportunity to grow sure definitely yeah and for me too some of the best opportunities i personally got were a result of decisions that initially felt a little bit unrealistic or really unrealistic and ultimately they either taught me something or they gave me an incredible opportunity that you know changed my career in some way uh, so what is the biggest creative risk that you've taken? <laughs> creative risk? I don't know. I mean, you know, even recently, I, I did an editorial not too long ago with a really cool uh, artist named St. John. And I had purchased on Amazon just a crappy, cheap fish islands, which, you know, 
back in, in the day when I was first starting out, that was when, you know, the fisheye was, was big the first time and, you know, the beastie boys were, were using it. And, you know, it was just one of those gimmicks that just kind of screamed late nineties, early two thousands. And I don't know, I, I just happened to be browsing, I think it was either Amazon or BNH, a big photo store in New York and saw fisheye. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to buy it. I don't know when I'm going to use it, but I brought it with me to the shoot. And it was something, you know, we were, it was a shoot during quarantine. So it was something where we're going to be outside. We, I wasn't going to have real control over the light. I was going to have to use natural light. And I was trying to figure out, you know, he's, he's such a dynamic artist and just has a real kind of original personality. So I was trying to think of like, how do I exaggerate the personality a bit more? And so I, I brought two bodies with me, one with a flat lens on it and one with this fisheye and the fisheye photos i think honestly turned out to be probably the you know some of the best photos i took that day but it's something you know wasn't it's not something that would be an obvious choice and it's definitely a risky choice especially these days when people want to do everything digitally because you, you then have the option of going back if you don't like it so you know you, if you shoot on fisheye there's no way to really flatten it out properly and uh, yeah, it was not a huge risk because I was still shooting on on a secondary camera as well. But it was something that was a bit out of step maybe with what I would normally do and was a really cool path. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, I saw those photos recently actually on your Instagram and I really like them and I'm a big fan of St. John's. And it's cool that you were able to work with a seemingly insignificant lens and create something unforgettable with it, really. It's, uh, it's cool and it's cool that you still do things like that that you are willing to experiment with different lenses even if they're not you know, the latest or most expensive ones and you are always inspiring yourself to try something new i think that's one of the best ways to keep your work fresh i think you have to you know i think just speaking for me personally i i have to you know i want to you know on one hand stay true to to kind of the vibe that i've i've created that i really respond to in terms of light but, you know, at, at the same time, if I'm going to work with modern artists, the work should reflect the artists themselves and the time period that they're, you know, producing their art in. And, you know, I think staying relevant is important, at least understanding where the current creative culture is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so social media, I think, is really a blessing and a curse. You know, on one hand, it exposes you to so much incredible work that's that's being created at the same time it also opens the doors to comparison and to you know insecurities and, and things like that so you know i try to to moderate the amount of of social media i consume um and i try to just keep it to things that are either inspiring me food and, and baking wise or you know to a limited degree to other you know amazing artists that can kind of inspire me and, and really keep me uh, current with, you know, whatever the zeitgeist is in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people talk about FOMO and the fear of missing out. And I think that is important, but it's also important, as you said, to kind of stay in touch with photographers, even to a certain limited extent, because that way you can keep up with trends, as you said, and understand what is going on in the photography industry. And especially for you as a professional, you really need to be aware, as you said, of these trends and what people are into at the moment. Um, but yeah, there is the other side of it where you feel like your insecurities are coming out. And I think it's it's cool and very uplifting to hear someone like you, as I mentioned previously, talking about insecurities as a photographer. And I think that's one of the, the best ways for us to connect because oftentimes um, social platforms like Instagram feel like they're really isolated and they're all about perfection. But when photographers especially come out and say, you know, I feel insecure about my work sometimes, even though I'm a professional it can really open other people's eyes and help them see themselves clearly. Definitely. And and I think just the volume of work that's being produced now can be so overwhelming, mm-hmm. you know, because now, you know, back in the day, there was definitely a, a greater barrier to entry. Um, you know, it wasn't hard to get a 35 millimeter camera. It wasn't hard to get some film and, and go shoot. But, you know, if you wanted some really good equipment, you know, it, it costs some money. And it was something that most people, unless you're a photographer, you wouldn't spend money to buy a, a medium format camera. And then, 
you know, to get your work seen meant you needed to have it published in a magazine. And, and there again was another barrier. Uh, so you had to really, you know, build relationships with editors and publicists and, you know, ingratiate yourselves with the people who were the gatekeepers. Um, and so there was, you know, this system of really kind of validating yourself over and over and over again to kind of squeeze through a door. And now with social media, you, a lot of those barriers have been eliminated entirely. So, you know, you can build an entire career without going to magazines at all. You know, you can build a a career just promoting yourself digitally. And of course, now even the cameras that are built into our phones is better really than, you know, or, or maybe on par with some of the early digital cameras. So there's just so much material that's being produced. And a lot of it is really good. You know, and as the technology's gotten better, you know, a lot of things that used to be very kind of niche and specialized, particularly color correction, and you know, really like getting into real grade um, and even retouching. Now that's become, you know, those are tools that are built into a lot of, you know, just kind of standardized mobile software now. So you can, you know, you can reshape a body, you can smooth the smooth smooth skin, you can. Uh, you know, you can add a, a what everybody's just calling, oh, just filter it. You know, people don't realize what a filter is really doing, but they don't have to anymore. They're just, you know, you just tap through the different filters and figure out what color you like. And suddenly, you know, magically it, it looks like a vintage Polaroid or, you know, a, a silver, you know, a black, white, silver print. Um, you know, so a lot of the stuff that used to be reserved for the professionals everybody is you know has at their disposal so now you have this this incredible vast ocean of amazing you know amazing content and that in itself can be overwhelming because how do you stand out in a sea of people producing beautiful work and that's where you you know you have to kind of just keep your head down and um and and put on blinders to some degree, yeah. And and not get into just constantly consuming, and really just focus on your work and what do you want to do, and just just go just go work, go produce work, and focus on the other elements of the business, which is the human connection and building relationships. And you know, it, it's I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that's out there. So I think more and more, it's important for people to just really focus on themselves and their own work. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialise in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Our 365 Days of Photography course is the ultimate learning experience for new photographers and even those with some experience. This course, presented in bite-sized lessons, teaches you step-by-step the essentials of photography and beyond. Get your discount code by visiting greatbigphotographyworld.com slash 365. That is a very good reminder. And it's very healthy for anyone in general, even if they're not photographers, to just, you know, keep your head down and limit your social media usage and make sure that you do what you love, not for any other reason other than, you know, wanting it to do it because of your passion and not because you feel pressured to do it or because you want to be better than someone else. Um, I mean, of course, competition is, is always there, but it's important to not spend hours on your phone or else you'll be overwhelmed, as you said. So, yeah, that's a uh, very good advice. You're equally good at taking photos in natural and in artificial light. What is your favorite type of lighting to work with and why? I, it's hard to say. I can't really say that one is a favorite. 
I think the benefit of, you know, really learning the cinema style of shooting first was that I, I had to be comfortable in both scenarios. You know, if you're working on a movie, you're likely not entirely, you know, shooting on set or you're not entirely shooting outdoors. Although, you know, some of them are, are outdoors. But, you know, you, you have to really... One of the things I learned from Russell was to, to pay attention to the sun. And, you know, when I was working with him, this was before phones had touch screens and before they had mobile apps. So we would have to use specialized computer software and, you know, compasses and theodolites, which would, would measure basically the height from, you know, from the, the horizon and basically map out where the sun would be. So before you get into a location, you need to know what the sun's going to be, you know, so what time are we going to load in? What direction are we going to shoot? Where are the trucks going to be? You know, again, on a movie, you've got vast numbers of people, equipment, trucks. So if all of your trucks are parked in the direction that you're shooting, moving them is a lot more complicated than moving a production van or a few cars. You know, this, this is something that could take an hour to move a bunch of big rigs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really planning things out ahead of time was part of the discipline, you know, for shooting outdoors and, and really understanding what's the what's the color and quality of the light going to be. And then how do we, you know, either use that and kind of work with it and maybe augment it or how do we work against it? How do we block it out? How do we create our own conditions that, that work for us? So. You know, there's something beautiful about working outdoors because you do have less control and because nature can provide some of the most beautiful lighting, um, you know, imaginable. I mean, look at look, but Emmanuel Lebesky and uh, John Toll, I think, are two of the, the greatest masters of at least modern masters of natural lighting. And they're, they're geniuses. But then at the same time, then you, you go indoors and maybe it's on a set that's built on a stage or maybe it's you know, in a real location. And then again, it's, it's using, okay, what light is coming through the windows or what light do we want to push through the windows? Then how do we want to, you know, are we lighting the scene and letting somebody just kind of walk through the scene or are we lighting the person and really trying to, to kind of highlight something about, about the face or the body. And so you have this now complete control over the lighting, which can be really fun, can be a little overwhelming you know, or in, in extreme cases, you know, you've, you've got a complete white seamless or colored seamless of some sort. Uh, so there's there's no indication of where the light should be coming from. It's, it's what do you want to do? So, you know, in that sense, that freedom to do anything is exciting. But sometimes it's kind of nice to have limitations. You know, sometimes it's kind of nice to have to work within a certain set of, of guidelines or rules. So it's it's really hard to say. There's no favorite necessarily. It's, I think for me personally, I, I need to have a bit of both, you know, not necessarily in the same shoot, but, you know, I like alternating at least between location shoots and studio shoots and just getting to exercise different, you know, different muscles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're essentially getting the best of both worlds. Yeah. I like that as well. I like working indoors and outdoors and natural light especially is nice as you said you don't really know what to expect from it sometimes and it does often create the most beautiful um, colors and light so it's uh yeah it's uh, i think for most photographers would agree it's it's all about balance and seeing what you feel like working with in the moment i guess definitely do you have stories planned for your photo shoots in advance or do you like to work spontaneously you know it, it depends on the shoot there's some in some cases if you're in studio if you have a decent amount of time. There isn't a tremendous amount of pressure. I'll kind of just for fun sometimes try not to plan things out and just show up and just see, see what strikes me. But, you know, if in some cases, you know, I'll be on, on a seamless, but maybe I only have a couple hours with the talent. So mm-hmm. to be efficient, I need to have some kind of plan ahead of time of, okay, how, how am I going to get everything that I know I need you know, that may be dictated by the client or, you know, whatever it is, how am I going to get everything I need within a certain period of time? And that means planning ahead, both equipment wise, but also manpower. How many assistants am I going to need? How are we going to transition between different setups very quickly? And, and how, you know, really, how am I going to get to my goal 
within the you know the time frame that's that's allotted. Uh, if you're on location, if it's all natural light, you know, depending on what time of year it is, winter it's interesting because the days are very short, but the light is generally shootable throughout you know through the whole day. In the summer, it's it's the opposite. The days are really long, but man, from ten thirty to probably two or three, the light gets really ugly because it's it's pretty much directly overhead. So you know, it's kind of understanding what are the conditions like. How much do we have to shoot? What are the hours the talent is available? What are the hours the location is available? You know, there there definitely is to to really treat this as a job and. If it's not just you and talent and maybe a couple other people, there does have to be some planning and preparation that goes into it. Insurance, permits, food. Are you getting an RV to do glam? So, you know, there's there's always thought that goes into production, into the creative side of things. That sometimes is dictated by, you know, the the client may send you a mood board where they're saying, oh, we're really into this kind of vibe. So then, you know, I, I always think about, okay, how, how do I best achieve this vibe with my own personality, of course, but, you know, how do I, how do I give them what they want in this location at this time with this person and this team? Yeah. It, it really depends, depends on the job. Sometimes it's fun to just show up and just have no idea and, you, you know, to say, well, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. But a lot of times, you know, if a client is spending a lot of money, they, that's not what they want to hear. They want to know that they are going to get, you know, exactly what they want or maybe even what their bosses want, you know, because in the end, everybody's just, you know, trying to, to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, of course, if you're working with a client that's big and it's a big budget shoot, then of course then you're going to have to create something that really reflects their style. But then it's also a matter, um, as you said previously, of inserting your own style into the photo shoot not making it something that's too perfect and something that is you know has a part of you in it too as a photographer yeah i think i mean figuring out what your your own style is is hard and takes time and it's not something that you can kind of really actively set out to to do and say like i'm gonna i'm today i'm gonna figure out what my style is because it's it's gonna change and you know uh it's yeah it's not a, a finite thing that, that you achieve and then and then you're done you know it's just something that's constantly uh evolving but you know the other thing is and i've i've been guilty of this in the past and i I, these are some of the the learning lessons i kind of look back on where i i really tried to shoehorn whatever the project was into what i thought my style was at the time and looking back on it you know some of these shoots i'll think wow you know i kind of did myself a disservice and i did you know i wasn't I, I was maybe not putting the client or product first, you know, when I made these decisions. Uh, and that was, you know, a lesson that I kind of learned along the way where if somebody is hiring me, if, it, if a client is hiring me to, to shoot, the first goal really needs to be what, is the, what does the client need? What does the client want? And then I can add my, you know, my magic sparkles and, and all that to the shoot but in the end like it's they've got to be happy mm-hmm. otherwise i'm not going to get the job again and you know and, and it's an honor to have somebody hire you in the first place so why not do right by them and make sure that they're getting what they want and you know not try to like twist it into something else because i feel like that's my you know that's my artistic stamp and you know i'm not going to do anything other than this Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is very important to prioritize the client's needs and, of course, to stay true to your style, but to, first and foremost, make sure that they are happy with the work that you're doing. Sure. So a lot of the people that you photograph are celebrities and many of them are actors. One would think that actors can fake confidence in any photo shoot, but I get the feeling that they're truly comfortable in front of your camera. I think it's difficult to make a portrait look candid and relaxed when you're shooting on a busy set, but you seem to have mastered that beautifully. You've said yourself that you're good at putting models at ease. How do you achieve that? There's no one way to to kind of get people to loosen up because everybody has a different personality, you know? So part of it is really just putting my ego aside entirely and realizing that, you know, if I'm going to get the shots that I want, I need to, to really tune into who this person is. And in some cases, that means 
you know, they, they may be huge and, and older and super famous, you know, and so they're, the way I treat them would be different than, than the way I treated somebody who's young and full of energy and, and new. So, you know, it's, it's really first, I think, kind of reading, reading the person. And, you know, sometimes I'll do more research than others in terms of what they've done in the past, you know, and, and see what's worked for them and what hasn't. See if there's, you know, see if there's something that they really prefer to do or prefer not to do. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, usually ask people, do you have a favorite side of your face? You know, less so if they're a model, but, you know, if they're an actor, they may really have one preferred side of the face. So then it's, it's really understanding that, you know, if I want them to be comfortable, I don't want them looking in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And that's going to affect how the lighting is. That's going to affect how the hair is, is done. And in some cases, maybe even affect the wardrobe. So, you know, just some of the basic things of how do I, how do I just make them comfortable with a picture? And then it's, it's trying to, to really feel who are they as a person? What mood are they in on this particular day? Does it seem like they want to talk a lot? Does it seem like they want to be a little more quiet? I'll ask them if they have a preference in music. You know, it's, it, it's kind of basic stuff. It's like if, you know, if you have a guest coming over to your house and you really want them to feel comfortable, it's, it's some of the same kind of things. Like, do you want anything to drink? You know, let me know if anything is, is happening where, you know, you're not feeling good about it. Let me know. If they know that you're looking out for their best interests right away, that's going to make them loosen up a bit. Mm -hmm. Then the other thing is, I would say, you know, when you're starting out at the beginning of the day, if, if they had not worked with you before, if they're not super familiar with with you as a person or, or even if you're they may know your work but maybe they're not you know super super intimate you know there's always that question of you know how how is this day going to go is this going to be you know a difficult day I, a lot of people even big celebrities are you know can be kind of insecure about taking a bad photo everybody's taking a bad photo but for them a bad photo gets spread all around the world yeah. And they feel like an idiot. So there's always that question of like, well, I don't, I don't know how today's going to go. So I always try to make sure that whatever the first setup is, it's something that is going to make them look great. And it's going to be something that goes quickly. Because if you can turn out a great shot, you can make it go quickly. They know that it's not going to be a waste of their time and that they're in good hands. So those are, that's, kind of generally the the rules that I that I play by kind of with with everybody it's, it's really just reading what vibe they're in and, and what what mood they're in and what their personality is and then just try to make the way that I communicate the way that I'm giving direction just make it make sense to to whoever that person is wow I really love that answer and I love the analogy you use where you basically have to treat every model or you know actor anyone you're working with as if they're in your own home and you're you know hosting and making them feel comfortable in the process so that's really cool i've never really thought of it from that point of view and it really works you really have to be attuned to how they're feeling and not just be rigid as a photographer you have to be flexible psychologically and i love that approach i think it really shows in your work thank you you know i mean there's there's you can sometimes play against that too. You know, I, I remember hearing in an interview that Annie Leibovitz did where uh, she was actually saying that people assumed that the role of the photographer was to make people comfortable. And she actually disagreed with that. And she kind of liked to maybe not antagonize people, but kind of push them a little bit and push them out of their comfort zone. You know, in some cases, I guess that's worked for me. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess everybody has their own way of working. So my way of working may not be uh, appropriate for, for other people. And I really appreciated um, when Annie was was talking about her, her process. I thought that was amazing. Um, and you look at her work and it really is uh, arresting. So but again, I, you know, I think that that can depends who depends who you're working with and depends who you are as a photographer, it depends on your age, you know. Some of the success, I think, there are a lot of really successful young photographers, but people just, you know, it's hard to be taken seriously until you're of a certain age. You know, people want to know that, that first you've kind of been through the shit, you know, so if everything goes wrong, like, are you going to freak out? Or are you going to be able to 
to work your way through it? Um, or if the talent has a freak out, are you gonna are you gonna lose it and crumble, or are you gonna be able to stand up and steer the ship? So you know, you got to kind of you read the situation. You got to figure out where you are in your life, in your career, who you are as a person, and and just sort of adapt. Absolutely. Yeah, you made a good point. Every photographer is different. We all have different styles. So what works for Annie will not maybe necessarily work for someone else. What works for you might work perfectly for another photographer listening to this. So I guess it's important to, as you said, read the room, understand who you are personally as a photographer, and uh, consider the clients you're working with if you're working with any clients. 100%. You've started to focus more on directing commercials, music videos, and films. Is there a movie that you wish you had directed and why? (laughs) <laughs> There's so many movies that I admire just on pure filmmaking. You know, being the age I'm at now, do I wish I had directed them? I don't know. I mean, a lot of the movies that I admire most, they were just brutal slogs, you know, the production themselves. So, you know, a movie like Apocalypse Now has been one of my favorite movies for since I was, you know, in film school and, you know, and really learning to admire film. And of course, you know, if you'd asked me in my 20s, sure, I would say like, yeah, I wish I wish I could, uh, you know, could have made that movie. I wish I could make a movie like that. But now, you know, being in my 40s and really understanding what it takes to make that movie, you know, to make something on that scale and those conditions, that is brutal. That is punishment. And if you watch... There's actually a documentary called Hearts of Darkness about making the movie. And you watch that honestly from from a an adult perspective. And you see that it was brutal for them. People were miserable for a long time. So I don't know. I've kind of reached a place where I'm I'm a bit more at peace with not directing feature films. And I like commercials and I like, you know, shorter form content. For the same reason why I really adapted well to still photography, uh, I, I miss the onset experience of movies. I really do. And I miss the, the scale of the crew that you get to work with versus a still photography set where everything is you're definitely a bit smaller. Um, so working on a commercial, I get to, to take a little bite out of you know, the piece of cake that is uh, you know, making a movie, but I don't have to eat the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to to work really hard for a day, two days, three days, maybe a week. And then I get to take a break and I get to kind of recoup, you know, reconnect with myself, get inspired again um, and maybe focus on something else. I like, you know, being able to do a bunch of different and, uh, you know, doing doing a movie like Apocalypse Now or Godfather or, you know, I mean, there's so many movies that I love, but watching the movie is very different than than shooting it. And, you you know, you're shooting two pages of script a day. So it's just the same stuff over and over and over and over from different angles and different lens lens lengths. You know, it's it's not generally a fun thing to do. It's a it's like running a marathon for months. You know, I there are many, many movies I admire, but I think I'm at a point now where I, I wouldn't say honestly that I wish I had directed those movies because I also know how rough it was to make make those movies. Yeah, well, I really like your answer. I was expecting like a, a specific movie, but it's it's nice that you have this. Uh, you've made peace with the fact that you're okay with making just commercials or or just shoot, getting into still life photography because. It's important, I think, for every individual to understand what exactly it is that they're comfortable with making um, as creatives. And if there's something that is too exhausting for you or it doesn't seem realistic, then if you make peace with that, I think that'll help you be even more creative in whatever it is that you want to specialize in. So I really do like your answer. I'm also, you know, just at a different place in life where, you know, in, you know, if I was in my 20s, going away to, you know, so many movies are shot overseas now because of tax benefits. So going away for six months is an adventure and, you know, your back doesn't hurt when you get up and, you know, just, it's, it's just a different part of your life. So then it makes perfect sense, you know? Um, But again, I wasn't emotionally ready to handle that. I was not personally in, in a, a 
a place where I could manage the stress and my life and relationships and, you know, my family and all that. But for some people, you know, they get out of film school and they just start directing movies and, you know, it's, it's not easy, but they, they push through and, and then, they make, um, but now, you know, being in a place where I'm married, you know, I have a home, I have dogs, you know, at some point we're going to, you know, we'll have kids. And I've seen my friends who are very successful feature directors and it's really hard to, to balance the film life with the rest of your life. And they have to make very difficult choices with, do I go away to Bulgaria for four months to shoot this movie and possibly miss my daughter's first step? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very different proposition, you know, uh, when you're at that stage of life versus when you're in your twenties and you have nothing tying you down um, and you just want to go on an adventure. So it's, you know, it, it comes down to priorities, you know, what's really important. And for me now in life, what's really important is quality of life and feeling, you know, part of quality of life is feeling creatively fulfilled. So that's definitely still a very much an important part of the equation, but it's also family. It's, it's the stability that I've built. It's the, you know, sense of community that I've built and yeah, there's, it's just, it's just really kind of seeking like what, what brings me joy. And I'm finding that in a lot of different places now. Mm -hmm. yeah. What a beautiful, elegant answer. I really like that. And I think that'll inspire listeners and it's inspiring me already to really think about what you, what we want in life, and not just as photographers, but as people, because what we want as people will dictate what how, the decisions we make as photographers. Yeah. I think, and again, like just being, if you think goal oriented, you know, well, what's the goal of life? And for me now, the goal is joy. And I'm finding that in, in baking bread, I'm finding that in gardening, I'm finding that in, you know, designing and decorating our home, you know, and really making it a beautiful, inspiring space. And of course, I'm finding that in photography, I'm finding that in directing commercials. Some people find that really in making movies, you know, and they're, and they're, they're great living that kind of nomadic lifestyle where they are uprooted for long stretches of time to go you know, work on this kind of epic puzzle that, you know, that it takes so much time and energy to put together, but that's not, that's not for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. It's all a matter of figuring out what your individual priorities are and those will be unique to your life. Definitely. Well, speaking of goals, my last question for you is what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? <laughs> you know, it's a good, it's a really good question. It's a question that I don't, I don't know that I have a clear answer for. I've been able to work with a lot of people that I admire. Um, I've been able to, to do some shoots that I, I'm really proud of. I would say there are definitely some people on my, my bucket list talent-wise who I just have always loved. You know, I've loved their work you know, from movies. I love you know, whatever it is that they, they've done is, is super, super inspiring and honorable and you know, and then in some cases, it's people who are really kind of shaping the world. So taking, you know, doing their portrait or, or just meeting them, getting to spend some time with them and, and taking a picture of them. Those are definitely some of my goals. I've also, you know, I, I think there's still some magazines that I haven't worked with that may not even be as relevant now as they were when I was coming up, but because they were you know, these beacons when I was coming up, they still in my mind are, you know, are, are still goals. So, you know, I think it's, it's really expanding on what I've been doing and really trying to elevate my work, elevate my just kind of brand as, you know, quote unquote, um, as a photographer and, and filmmaker, um, and really just I, I think expanding the clients that I work with, the creative that I get to to execute, and the talent that I I get to partner with. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really it's just doing better and doing more, you know. Mm -hmm. But but in a uh, hopefully really focused on quality. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure you will be able to achieve that, and you'll be able to do even greater things in this big photography world of ours. And it was an honor to talk to you. Thank you for being on the podcast. I loved all of your answers and I'm sure the listeners did as well. And yeah, thank you for your time, Mike. I had a lot of fun talking to you. You're very welcome, Sarai. Um, it was a pleasure to be here.
Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, what a great way to start the year. Mike's outlook on photography is very inspiring and so refreshing, and I had so much fun talking to him. I ended the interview feeling like a whole new person, and I hope you had a similar experience. Please make sure to check out his portfolio, and I'm confident that his vibrant portraits will inspire you in one way or another. See you next week. There's a simple reason why PhotographyCourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.